Okay, we're back to Exodus, and thank you, I was wondering where that went, it's like, okay, I got the text memorized anyway. All right, um, here's how we're going to begin, radio talk show host, seminary professor, popular author, speaker, Michael Horton had a conversation with a Jewish rabbi a while back, and this is how it went. The rabbi said to Michael Horton, Dr. Horton, you know, one of the greatest differences between our two religions is the idea that you've committed a sin just by desiring or thinking it. I mean, we believe that you have to actually commit the physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, he chuckles, we'd be sinning all the time. (laughs) You gotta love you gotta love Horton. Those of you that know him. We are, he says. That's the whole point. Well, welcome back to our series on the Ten Commandments. We've taken a little two week break through the holiday season and, and this is gonna be our last commandment uh, on the commandments before we pick it up after the season. Uh, and welcome to a topic that is avoided in the church. Maybe more than any other topic, but not by God. Welcome to the topic of sex. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now this is in the context of Mount Sinai. We're going to start at verse 1. Ours is going to be very, very short. The last one we looked at, commandment number 6, was the shortest. Well, actually, it's the second shortest. And, uh, and this one is, these next three are really, really punctuated and quick. And God spoke all these words saying, listen, I'm the Lord your God. This is the gospel. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the defining moment of all of Israel's history. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the high watermark. Deliverance out of Egypt. Context of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, earth beneath, that's in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them, serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'll visit iniquity on the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days do your labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you should not do any work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, livestock, sojourner, visitor who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. That was the last one. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant, male servant, female servant, ox, ox, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the battle trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, 
that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word thunders. Thank you that your word flashes. And thank you that your word primarily is a still small voice. So God, you are the God who's majestic and you are the God who is massive in mercy. And to your mercy we appeal, to your mercy we cry out to, to your mercy we, we throw ourselves upon. And we ask that you would draw near. And we ask that you would be merciful. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of your people. Amen. All right. You shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus filled in this commandment by connecting behavior to the heart. He does this in Matthew 5, 27. He says, you've heard it said. Now, what we need to remember when Jesus has his mountaintop experience as the second Moses on the Sermon on the Mount, where Moses was on Mount Sinai, when Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, he's referring back to what was said on this mountain, but he's not going back and correcting what was said on Mount Sinai. You've heard it said, now I say this. What he's doing is he's addressing the misinterpretation of those church religious people that came in and started interpreting what happened on the first mountain and said this is what it means he's coming in and speaking to those interpretations okay so that's an important point some of you realize that others of you are thinking man is he you know is the new testament at odds with the old testament no not at all what jesus is primarily at odds with is our natural normal man-centered interpretations of the bible what we do so good at, all right? He always kind of upsets the apple cart in that way. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her heart. Now, did you notice that Jesus singles out men in this one? Now, adultery is, is a equal opportunity employer, male and female. It's not sexist. Adultery is not sexist. But it's fascinating that the realm that Jesus starts targeting in the hidden place of the heart is the realm of men. That's a little too uncomfortable. Now, sexual sin is so serious that he continues in his Sermon on the Mount in verse 29. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, rip it out. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, when I was in church history class and Dr. Hannon was teaching in this particular part of church history, he says, you know, some early church leaders took that verse literally. They gouged out their eyes because they struggled with lust. And then after the initial trauma that was done to their eyes as their bodies maybe was slightly beginning to heal, days later, weeks later, they came to this terrible realization that though their eyes are gone, lust is not. That what you really got to do is rip out your heart. Now, 
The seventh commandment needs no need developing to get your attention, does it? Does it? I mean, I have been, literally, I've been to Tashkent and Boston, and I can't tell you no matter where you are in the world, Anytime we brought in a topic on sex and relationships, we packed the house out. It didn't matter if you were in Asia. It didn't matter if you were in Eastern Europe. It didn't matter if you were in Boston, Massachusetts. It doesn't matter if you're at Baylor University. You talk about sex and relationships and the, and the student centers are packed out. So I, I know that all I have to do is just put those three letters in the bulletin and I have everybody's attention right now. And that's why I intentionally did that. I know your attention is secured, so I don't need to spend a lot of time on the brutal statistics of emotional and sexual affairs, do I? Statistics say that over half the married men and over a third of the married women today are engaged in extramarital affairs. I don't need to spend much time on the brutal statistics of pornography. Most experts believe that the primary reason the internet is still around is to feed that trillion dollar monster of porn and growing. I don't need to spend much time on the brutal statistics of destroyed marriages, destroyed families, and destroyed personal lives by sexual sin. I don't need to spend a lot of time on that. I don't need to spend a lot of time on destroyed ministries and destroyed churches by sexual sin. Do I? Nor do I need to spend much time in doing the comparisons between those who are churched and unchurched because the statistics are the same. In the church, outside the church, it doesn't matter. The statistical dead heat between the churched and unchurched is nothing new according to church historian Michael Horton. He puts it this way. The reformers in the 1500s lamented the moral corruption of the medieval age. But you know where they targeted it? The reformers, you know, those that we hold to such high esteem... Guys like Luther and Calvin. I mean, unbelievable guys. You know where they were targeting? You know where they said that the primary cesspool of the moral corruption in that age was coming from? The cell of the monk. It was coming from those who actually were trying to separate themselves from the carnal passions of the world and to pursue some sense of false holiness all alone in a cell. But they couldn't rip out their heart. Now, Horton also gives us a a good warning as we tackle this subject. When the church tackles the subject of sexual sin, this is what he says, and I think we need to hear this. He says, we seem to forget that from, and he names a specific person who's major in the church world that fell from, fell in the sexual area. We seem to forget from so-and-so to so-and-so to the current affairs of average preachers all across our nation that there is a general perception in the culture and the world today inside the church, outside the church, general perception that those who do the most talking about morality spend the most time finger-pointing are among the most corrupt in their personal lives. In 20 years of doing ministry and from my living with my own heart, I can tell you that across the board from a range of issues, it doesn't matter. Whatever we bark the loudest about in other people's lives is what we struggle the most with in our own life. And here's the reason, and this is why this is so important. The reason is this. Self-righteousness always exerts itself as the solution, as the way of salvation to self-indulgent failures. 
See, see, what happens is, is when we have these, we talk about this kind of stuff in our culture and in the church. We talk about the, the self-indulgent, sinful stuff that happens. Self-righteousness comes in and says, I'll save the day. I'll save you. And that's what we got to realize. While we talk about this, we can't go to this. Self-indulgence and self-righteousness both are sinful in the eyes of God. Both are ways of trying to save yourself. Okay? All right. So here's the plan. Most of us know that sexual sin is a mess. Whether you're a man or a woman, married or unmarried or single, young or old, churched or unchurched, we all get it. However, we often fail to dig deep enough into this subject. We hardly get beyond the hormones gone amok. That's, that's basically as far as we get. Yep, hormones gone amok, Susie. I mean, that's about all we do. We get there. We don't get beyond that. So we've got to get beyond that. We've got we've to define what sexual sin is and what it's not. All right? And then we've got to find the way out. What's the way out of this thing? I mean, is there, is there a, a way out beyond turning up the moral willpower button in your life? Is there a way out beyond the fear of what people will think of you? Is there a way out beyond the motivation of disappointing yourself here or those that you care about or your reputation in the church? Is there, is there something more wonderful and more beautiful and more ecstatic and more pleasurable that attracts you and draws you and replaces the other? That's where we're heading, okay? So the very first thing we need to say about defining sexual sin is this. Sex is not sin. Those of you who are squirming in your seats right now because of today's topic, I dare you to read, later today, Song of Solomon and Proverbs 5. And I dare you to do it without blushing. And I dare you to do it without thinking it's dirty. And I dare you to do it without skipping over it when you read it with your children in your home. And I dare you, if you're married, to put it to practice. All right? Most churches would fire Solomon. for preaching those sermons from Song of Solomon and Proverbs 5, he'd be out the door catching his robe while he runs. All right? Solomon is telling husbands in those passages to be ravished with their wives' bodies, to delight in sexual intimacy with their wife. Solomon's historical point is this. He's saying, look, historically, we all know there's a, there's a uh, in-the-text historical lens that leads to the redemptive lens. They're both present. But the historical point, his historical point, and we'll get to what the redemptive point is, but the historical point is he's saying, basically, he's talking to his son. He's talking to sons. He's talking to young men, men that are about to be married, engaged to be married, married, men that have been married for a long time. And he's saying, listen, Sons, the degree to which you are ravished by your wife's body, the degree to which you are sexually intimate 
And delighting in it with your wife is the degree to which you glorify God in the gift he gave you. Oh, twist my arm. (laughs) I hear that nervous laughter out there. (laughs) The silence and prudish handling of sex in our churches today, can I say this, is devastating ourselves and our children. To state it positively, we must follow the Bible where it leads, wherever it goes. And we got to follow the Bible courageously, relentlessly, realistically, and redemptively in the area of sexual intimacy. If we don't follow the Bible, we and our children will continue to get our sexual cues from the culture and not from God. There is a sexual vacuum. It will be filled, and we know it's being filled. All we have to do is open our eyes and look around today, and we see the vacuums being filled. If we don't lead the church, lead in this area, this particular area, if we don't lead, if we don't lead with our children, we don't lead with ourselves, if we don't, all the lies and all the misery and all the pain that's out there will continue to be out there because that will fill the void. Okay? It's fascinating to me that many that are in the sexually silent, you know, you need to be sexually silent in the church, sexually prudish in the church, that the the people they claim as their model are the Puritans. That absolutely blows my mind. Historians will tell you that it wasn't the Puritans that were sexually repressed. It was the Victorians that came later. So in other words, where the church has gotten its cue over the last hundred years on how to deal with this area in the church has been from the Victorians, not the Puritans. Skip Ryan was a former pastor of the church that sent us down here to plant this church. He said the Puritans were so candid, so frank, that you would not tolerate a Puritan preacher in his pulpit preaching about sexual intimacy. History professor at Yale University decided to, you know, because the Puritans were blamed for everything, so he decided to study the Puritan view of sexual intimacy, sexual love. He gathered all the data and wanted to publish it in the Yale Review. This scholarly liberal journal would not publish the findings because it said they would offend the readers. The first thing we must see in defining sexual sin according to the seventh commandment is sex is not sin. Sex is a mega gift from God. Now, when I do premarital counseling, the last session is the sex talk. I tell everybody what we're doing up front. We're going to have five, six sessions. And the last one is the sex talk. You know, the guy gets fidgety. The, the, the gal looks at the clock on the wall. And this is what I say when we finally get there. I say stuff like this. It begins like this. You've been told your whole life that premarital, premarital sex is bad. And it is. You've been told for 18, 20, 25, 30 years, no, no, no. Now, on your wedding night, God is telling you, go, go, go. Proverbs 5, are you ready? See if y'all can handle it. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. I'm going to give you the literal translation with the metaphors. All right? Here it is. 
Passionately pursue sexual pleasure from your own wife, sexual pleasure from your own well, your own wife, okay? Should your pleasure be scattered abroad into the streets like water? Let your sexual pleasure be blessed. How? By delighting in the wife of your youth. As if you are a buck and she is, this is in the text, and she is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Now those of you that hunt know exactly what this means. The only time you see a buck is when it's mating season. They're never seen. Hunters never see them. And I'm not even read the last part because I can't. It's too embarrassing for me. But the last part says be intoxicated. In other words, be drunk always in her love. Do you get that? Six, sex is not sin. <laughs> and if you're uncomfortable what we just talked about, you think it is. Sex is not sin. It is a mega gift from God. Now, sexual sin though, what is it? We just defined what it's not. What is it? Sexual sin according to the seventh commandment, according to Jesus, according to Paul, and according to the rest of the New Testament is this. Pursuing the mega gift from God outside of marriage. Sexual sin is pursuing this mega gift from God outside of marriage. If you were the proverb, you were Solomon, you say, by going abroad, by going into the streets. Most houses are built with fireplaces today, right? Fireplaces are made, they're built, they're designed, they're constructed for what? Fire. Blazing, bright, majestic, mysterious, powerful fire. Your kitchen table is not made for fire. Your living room, your favorite sofa, the baby's crib is not made for fire. Sexual sin is building a fire outside of marriage. And it will burn your house down. God gave the mega gift of sexual intimacy to married couples, husbands and wives. That's the fireplace. That's what it's designed for. That's been constructed. It's, it is divinely designed. Sexual intimacy, sexual love is divinely designed for married couples, husbands and wives. That's the fireplace. It's not designed outside. It doesn't work outside is what the text is saying. Now, why did God give this mega gift, though, only to married couples? Why is the fireplace the marriage for fire? Why is it not the living room or the bathroom or the favorite sofa. Why? Why is that? Now remember, remember what the root of all the Ten Commandments that we're looking at here. In the Gifted and Talented class this morning, which is the class that's talking about the Ten Commandments, they get a little extra credit. In that class, the GT whatever, talented folks, the, the roots of the Ten Commandments are not God as the list giver. God loves lists and he loves laws, so he just hands them out. Remember the root. We've looked at this before. The root of all the Ten Commandments, the, the payload that the Ten Commandments come out of is image-bearing. 
This is what God is like. Image him. This is who he really is. Be like him. Put him on display. That's what the Ten Commandments are rooted in. So when you ask the question, why does God put this mega gift in marriage between husbands and wives? Why does he do that? The answer is marriage is a covenant relationship that images a covenant God. God is a covenant God. God binds himself legally and relationally to his people. It is the most intimate, personal, ecstatic, pleasurable, thrilling, enjoyable, deep, profound, purposeful, meaningful relationship there is in all the universe. And after the fall, this covenant relationship that God has with his people is called a covenant of grace. All relationships, human relationships, are echoes, shadows, images of God's binding relationship with his people. And marriage is highlighted as having a special place of putting on display what God is like with his people. Paul puts it this way. We read it in our text earlier. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But notice what he's saying. It's profound. What's profound here is I'm talking about how it refers to Christ and the church. Sexual love, sexual intimacy is a mega gift from God because it points beyond itself to the thrill, the beauty, the wonder, the ecstasy, the pleasure, the delight, the ultra life of knowing God. If Piper were here, he'd say it this way. All pleasure says, anything that's pleasurable, all pleasure says, God is like this but better. This gift points to the ultra gift of a relationship with God, of knowing God. Now, the reason sexual sin can burn your house down is because Paul says, as we've looked at, Paul says, listen, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. That's what he says in Corinthians. It's not meant for it. It's not designed for it. Sexual sin, sex, the gift of sex is fire. And it's only to be in the fireplace. You put it somewhere else, it'll burn everything down, is what he's saying. Uh, Skip Ryan, who was preaching the seventh commandment, I looked at his sermon, and this is what he said. He said, would you rather face a crazed bull or a crazed mouse? Unless it's Pipachek, right? Because you don't want to face him. A Ripachek. What's his name? Well, it's something like that. <laughs> okay. Regain control, folks. <laughs> is my face turning red? <laughs> Not on sex, but on Ripachek or whatever his name is. All right. Well, that says a lot about me, doesn't it? All right. The larger the something is, the larger something is, the more dangerous it is. 
The larger something is, the more dangerous it is if it gets out of order. When sex gets out of order, it is a huge problem in our lives, end quote. Sex is a mega gift. Sexual sin is a mega mess. You with me? Okay. Many of you have started a fire outside the fireplace. I know that. You've suffered the loss and you have the burn marks. Maybe you've had sexual sin with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's pornography, homosexuality. Maybe it's an emotional or sexual affair outside your marriage. Maybe you can't shake the lustful looks. Maybe you can't shake the fantasizing of the perfect man, the perfect romance, the perfect relationship. And the movies and the books don't help. Here's the first thing I want to say to you. Jesus died for sins like these. Jesus loves sexual sinners. Matthew goes out of his way to show, to show in Jesus' family line all the sexual sinners in his family line. I mean, Noah wasn't in that list, but he should be in that list. Tamar, David, Solomon, Rahab. Jesus never turns away a sinner who comes to him. Never. So trust Jesus as your sin substitute. Go to Jesus with your sin. What's your sin in this area? Go to Jesus with him. Go to Jesus with it and trust him as your sin substitute. In other words, trust him that he took all your sin, including these, and took them upon himself on the cross and paid the penalty, suffered the cosmic rejection and eternal justice for them in your place so that you can be and experience forgiveness. Okay? Now, after you do that, Do not go back and take the guilt and take the dirtiness and take the shame and put them on your back and carry it around again. Stop trying to be your own savior by taking the guilt and the pain on you. What I mean is this. You cannot earn forgiveness. You can't atone for your own sin. You can't feel bad enough, long enough, hoping that you'll be forgiven or experience forgiveness or you'll at least approve yourself because you've beat yourself up enough. You, You cannot earn forgiveness. You can only receive it freely by grace and massive mercy at the expense of his own son. Now, if you really want to change in this area, if you really want to change, this is a challenge. If you want to stop playing games and just keep confessing it over and over again and beating yourself up over and over again, you really want to change? You've got to realize that 
that sexual adultery is ultimately spiritual adultery. Sexual adultery is ultimately spiritual adultery. And what what the scriptures mean by this is that you're looking to sexual sin to be your savior. To love you. To give you ultra happiness. To give you significance and beauty. To give you pleasure and delight. It can be used as well to pursue another substitute savior. In other words, it might not be the end. Like you're not after beauty and pleasure. You're not after the the feeling and the thrill and the ecstasy to be your life. But what you are after is someone to love you. So it's really on sitting on top of another substitute savior, another source of spiritual adultery. You just want to be loved. But you want to be loved in a safe distance because you can't take the emotional rejection. So you look at porn. Because you can get this and avoid this, right? It also can be used as, a, as a, a default way of avoiding or dealing with pain of other substitute saviors. In other words, distract yourself from another substitute savior. You've been rejected over here, so you run over here. The rejection of someone or a love relationship is really the, the ultimate substitute savior. And this becomes a cosmic band-aid. Okay? So that can happen. So what we need to realize is that sexual sin or spiritual sexual adultery is really spiritual adultery. It's really saying, I'm trusting this to save me. So men and young men, we've got to end. Men or young men, Jesus is source beauty. Jesus is source pleasure. What that means is is that sexual pleasure designed for marriage is secondary pleasure. It's echo beauty. It's not the real thing. It's not the ultimate thing. So what you're really, really longing for, craving for, needing is the ultimate beauty of Jesus, the ultimate pleasure of a relationship with Jesus. And then here's the other thing, men and young men, you need to realize, and that is, is that the sexual sin, the sexual pleasure is fading, the scripture says. It's diminishing. It's fading and eventually will be gone. But source beauty, source pleasure in Jesus, the text says, is expanding day by day. And one day it will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So fix your eyes on ultimate beauty. Fasten your heart on ultimate pleasure and knowing Jesus and the relationship with Jesus. And young ladies and ladies, Jesus is the only one who was, is, and will be faithful to you. The perfect man. He will not fail you at all even to the immeasurable cost of of giving up his own life for you. The blood of God was shed 
to show how much he won't fail and will be faithful to you. So rest in his perfect, unfailing love for you. Don't rest in imperfect, failing men, even your own spouse. Don't rest in that. Don't rely on that. Don't find your life in that. And don't rest and rely on an outward beauty that is fading. Don't. Now, one day you're going to get a glorified body. And all of us are going to stand around going ooh and on to everybody. Oh, my. Wow. Look at that. You beautiful people. That's what we'll be doing in heaven. And surely don't rest in, in someone who is not your husband. You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. A lot more there than we thought in there. Amen.